In this episode, we're taking a closer look at what might be one of cycling's most sacred cows, altitude training. If you believe that altitude training is basically compulsory for elite cyclists, I'm going to ask you for the next hour to be prepared to question altitude training as a training intervention rather than assuming training like the pros or training like other pros is always the best method. And this is a message that applies equally to amateur cyclists as it does to pros seeking an edge in their training. So to help you decide if it's worth the effort, we're going to discuss altitude training from a skeptic's perspective to understand this issue outside of cycling culture, because for some riders, it might actually do more harm than good. But if we were going to challenge the status quo, we wanted to make sure we spoke to someone that ticked all the right boxes in terms of expertise, background, credentials, and had zero conflict of interest. Just someone in search of the truth. And this is why Jason and Cyrus ended up speaking with Professor Jerome Dempsey on this topic. Many people will be unfamiliar with Jerome outside of the realm of applied physiology research, but he is a major player in this field. We'll get into the specifics of why he's qualified to lead us through this challenge shortly, but for now, it's sufficient to mention that Jerome has co-authored a number of papers on training in hypoxia. Of particular interest is one of two special communications papers offering contrasting perspectives on whether or not altitude training is beneficial. The journal Medicine and Science in Sport and Exercise published Jerome's paper, Hypoxic Training is Not Beneficial in Elite Athletes, in their February 2020 edition. As an athlete, coach, or sports scientist, your decision to engage in altitude training may hinge on any number of the points raised here today by Professor Dempsey. All right, welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. The podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me. Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. Today, the lack of consensus among hypoxia experts contrasted with altitude training's enthusiastic prescription among endurance athletes suggests there is a dire need for an honest discussion around this topic. Some real talk, as it were. And this episode, we aim to provide just that. We'll discuss the pros and cons of altitude training, including the negative effects on performance, and provide suggestions for enhancing the process, despite the fact that even the most knowledgeable experts in the field still question whether the benefits outweigh the costs and the risks. I've known Professor Jerome Dempsey for quite a while. I originally met you, Jerry, I don't know if I remember this or not, but back in 2013 at the ACSM annual meeting in Indianapolis. I'd have to say that whether you know it or not, Jerry, between my master's and my PhD, you were kind of an unofficial mentor for me. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Pleasure knowing you these last several years as well. Today, the focus will be around altitude and hypoxic training. One of the things that we've noted while on the show is that just about every World Tour pro cyclist that we have brought on the show has discussed or at least mentioned 
training at altitude. I've been going up to altitude now for almost 20 years. Yeah, we had this altitude camp or two altitude camps before the duo in 2020. And it's my first week home in my apartment for nearly two months. I've been away racing and at altitude camps for a long time now. Yeah, I have really good uh, experience with uh, high altitude training. I have very good sensations when I come back down and start racing again. So it's uh, something I try and build into my training as much as possible. I woke up this morning and no toilet paper in the house. I had to get resourceful and use my girlfriend's old makeup wipes to get the job done. And sometimes it's just the reality of the job going away so much there's often no resources left in the house. You get the idea. Altitude training is popular amongst pros. But as Jason is about to explain, we do things differently at the Cycling Performance Club and we don't assume anything in our hunt for solid evidence that an intervention works. Within the culture of cycling, there is this assumption that altitude works because we've been doing it for so long, but it does seem to be maybe not as concrete as one might think in terms of its efficacy. And so we're bringing on Jerry to talk about that because Jerry's been kind of a altitude skeptic. Is that how I want to phrase it here, Jerry? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned in the intro that Jerome, alongside Christopher Siebenman, PhD, is one of the authors of the article, Hypoxic Training is Not Beneficial in Elite Athletes, published in the February 2020 edition of Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise Journal. This debate is not about whether the idea of altitude training makes sense, but whether it works in practice and what to consider when you look closely at the science. But using this as our only reference for Jerome grossly undersells him. So let's take a moment to get to know him. Professor Jerome Dempsey is a world-renowned respiratory physiologist. And why would a respiratory physiologist be interested in altitude training? There is a clear association between altitude training and exercise at altitude within respiratory physiology. So there is definitely an overlap between those two areas. To be upfront here, Jerome is not an endurance coach, but he has been interested in and studied the effects of hypoxia for about 60 years, with a specific interest in the effects of hypoxia in humans and how it contrasts with animals that are very hypoxic tolerant. Jerome is very clear about the reasons someone might use altitude training. Not seeing much evidence on training at high altitude for performance at high altitude, because he did a study on that in the 60s, not with highly trained athletes, but they did see some effects of training at high altitude, but not a lot on the parameters that they were looking at. So he's taken a keen interest in altitude training and the effects of hypoxic training on performance at sea level. For my thoughts on this is, first, you have to make sure you separate why you are hypoxic training. There's kind of two main reasons. Are you doing hypoxic training and altitude training so that you can perform better at altitude? That's one reason that you would do this. And then the other one would be, are you doing this so that you can perform better at lower altitudes, like uh, at sea level and that type of thing? And that's a separate type of hypoxic training or a purpose. That's more, I would say, more of an ergogenic aid. And so my take on it is similar to what my take on uh, heat acclimation is, is that there's probably really good evidence that the hypoxia training works if you are planning to compete at altitude 
but the evidence for hypoxic training being beneficial for sea level or ergogenic at sea level or lower altitudes, I think is less convincing. This brings us back to the active debate on whether altitude training provides any benefits. And the arguments on the not beneficial side are that the vast majority of altitude training studies are flawed because they're unblinded, subject to placebo effects, highly variable in their outcomes, and sometimes occur with big differences in training load between the control and the hypoxic training groups. On the beneficial side, they believe that even if the data is imperfect, it overwhelmingly points to a benefit from altitude training. We're going to tackle some of these arguments, starting when you look at hypoxia and a human, there is an ability to adapt. But for every adaptation, there is also a maladaptation at a cost. And they think the evidence is really clear on that. Maladaptations feature as one of three main questions currently being debated with some pretty strong words when the maladaptations outweigh the benefits of the different hypoxic methods, including, and I quote, our opponents see no evidence that the maladaptive effects of hypoxia outweigh the benefits of hypoxic training. And our opponents also show little concern regarding adverse health effects. So what are these adverse health effects and what type of maladaptation are we talking about? Cyrus was straight onto it after Jerome mentioned this in the conversation. Do you want to give an example quickly, Jerry, of like one of those maladaptations? Let's take the, the most relevant one to this topic. Producing more red cells is a good idea, right? So that increases your oxygen content to try and compensate for the decrease in saturation of each hemoglobin molecule. So you have more hemoglobin. Makes sense. At the same time, and this has been shown literally millions of people that live high altitude, you get to the point of an overproduction of red cells and the blood becomes too viscous. Now, ordinarily, you have to really increase your red cell mass a lot for viscosity to be a problem. But at high altitude, you combine that with a pulmonary circulation that constricts, which is another real maladaptation. I can think of no adaptive advantage of a hypoxic vasoconstriction of the pulmonary vasculature. So you're trying to push. You've already got a high pulmonary arterial pressure at high altitude because of hypoxic vasoconstriction, okay? And that's not good. In extreme altitudes, that'll cause pulmonary edema. It's a major cause of fatalities of high altitude. At the very least, it'll create a non-uniformity of ventilation to perfusion distribution in the lung, which causes more hypoxemia, arterial hypoxemia, especially during exercise. And if you have, on top of that, even a mildly increase in viscosity, you're trying to shove that through a narrower orifice. And that even exacerbates the pulmonary. So that's, that's one example I can think of. Yeah. If you don't have a background in biology or medicine, that might have been a lot to digest. But the bottom line is this. The adaptations that occur with the exposure to hypoxia are certainly not all beneficial for an athlete. Some other examples in the article include adverse health effects from moderate hypoxia used for hypoxic training, 
It is clearly sufficient to induce, for example, nocturnal periodic breathing with intermittent hypoxemia and sleep state disruption and a raised heart rate. Then there's also acute reductions in performance when at altitude. The number one question I get asked, Jerry, which I'm not sure you'll be able to answer, is everyone, when I bring up altitude, always says, how hard do you have to go before it starts making a difference? And it is really tricky because it depends what you say is making a difference. And obviously, at each level, there will be different adaptations and, as you say, maladaptations occurring. So a lot of people sort of want to know, oh, once I get to 1,500, is anything different happening at that point? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Chris Gore who was, I guess, the champion of hypoxic altitude training at the Australian Institute of Sport, has studied yep. this his entire career. And he's the one that I've talked to extensively about this and have, have watched his publications. Let's just take performance in hypoxia. And you look at an objective measurement, the endurance measurements will show this as well. But if you look at the VO2 max for starters, you see that decline starting at less than 1,000 meters altitude. Yeah. It starts to fall. And if you're a highly trained athlete, it falls substantially more than if you're not a highly trained athlete. Right. Okay. Now, that's been investigated. What's the cause of that? Do you guys know? Do the athletes that. know what the cause of their, their fallen performance is? Uh, yeah, I'd say from athletes, they're all aware that essentially the the end cause is less oxygen delivery to muscles. And then there's obviously some steps in the chain that is getting to that point. But basically for aerobic energy production, we want maximum oxygen delivery to the muscles. And then basically as you obviously increase altitude, there's less oxygen in the air. And at some point, um, the body is unable to deliver the same amount of oxygen to the muscles as it would at sea level. Okay. And the major reason that the oxygen down is because of the oxyhemoglobin saturation is lower. And that's a function of the lung. Yep. And the athlete, some athletes, we never have an idea of the prevalence of this, but many endurance trained athletes, even at sea level, show an arterial oxygen desaturation. Even at sea level. Or they're very close to it. Gore showed this very nicely. All that he had to do was expose them to even a less than a thousand meters equivalent altitude. And he saw profound desaturations. I've seen the same thing back in the 80s. And with female athletes, even more endurance athletes. So your performance is going to be pretty significantly affected, even with mild degrees of hypoxia. But let me back up on something here. Doping works. If you increase oxygen carrying capacity, the data from the 80s is very clear on this, where they experimentally manipulated hemoglobin mass in highly trained athletes, and you could see right around the 3, 4, 5% elevation in hemoglobin mass, you started to see an increase in VO2 max. And then it became a dose-dependent effect. And you could predict the increase in the VO2 max based on a thing called the Fick equation, which is VO2 max equals blood flow times content. And they're changing the ox arterial oxygen content. You're going to change delivery to the muscle, and you can predict it. So there's no doubt about that. If you can increase 
the hemoglobin mass, okay? Just on its own, I'm not talking about hypoxia now, just on its own, for sure you'll change performance. So I have no argument with that at all. And <laughs> I guess from the practical standpoint, an awful lot of athletes have proven that in reality, haven't they? Unfortunately. Now let's take a moment to lay out the case for altitude and hypoxic training from the authors of the counter article, the altitude training is beneficial article. Recognize that there are biological costs for hypoxic adaptations that outweigh the benefits. So they do recognize these maladaptations. They also recognize exercise induced arterial hypoxemia leading to a larger decrease in VO2 max and aerobic endurance. There's increased sympathetic activity and decreased ferroflex sensitivity, and they recognize there's increased pulmonary arterial pressure. They also say there's no doubt that sleeping could be affected. I can attest to that for sure. Yep, yeah, definitely. But the authors of the beneficial article present their take on robust data supporting hypoxic training in elite athletes, stating that there are many articles supporting the positive hematological effects of live high, train high, or live high, train low, as long as the hypoxic dose is high enough. The initial paper they bring up is by Ben Levine and James Stray Gunderson. They're going to cite research like that that says, hey, there's a benefit. And then they're going to cite, uh, look at the practice right now with elite cyclists and elite endurance athletes. Look at them. They're doing this. And so they would say, this is obviously beneficial. And so that's their case right now. And then they also are kind of trying to say, we don't have enough good evidence that these maladaptations have a bad effect. And they would also kind of counter with, you know, where's your studies that say it says it hurts. So do you have any thoughts to any of these things, either like the, the cultural bit or any of these studies that have been done that show benefits? I guess we start with the studies that have shown benefits. Do you have any criticisms around this or things that people should realize yeah, about this? Yeah, you have to look in great detail at the studies. Mm -hmm. They're yep. really difficult studies to pull off. And mm -hmm. one of the big things, and, and I admire the people who have really done, I mean, there's a lot of junk out there, but the, the mm -hmm. ones that have really done the, the well-thought-out studies. And even in those studies, the great majority of them, as we outlined in our debate, that the training intensities and durations are not the same in the two groups. Almost always the group in the live high, train low have an excessive training. Well, mm -hmm. then your experiment's already negated. Yep. You can't really compare them. Yeah, and that's what happened in Levine's For sure, study. and many others. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of those studies that don't, that don't even have a control group. So you just forget about them. That's mm -hmm. not science. Then yep. if you look at, um, and, and my co-author, Christoph Siebelman, he's the one that's all over the literature on this. So we went back and looked at the details of those first studies of the Live High Train. Well, there were 39 athletes. They weren't really an elite level, but they were highly trained athletes. And of the 39, the effects on the sea level performance was about something like 17 showed an improvement. 15 showed a decrease in sea level performance. Not an improvement, a decrease. And the remainder were kind of in between. 
either yeah. up or down. And that seems to be one of the big issues with this, right? Is that if you look at the mean percentage of the increase of performance or hemoglobin mass, you can point at the study and say like, hey, look, there's a benefit. There's this percent increase. But if you start teasing apart the data, you're like, hold on, like it wasn't an increase for everybody across the board. There were just people that had such a big increase that it changed the mean to make the ones who had a decrease. Well, better. I just gave you the numbers. I would yeah, think yeah. if I was an athlete or coach looking at that, I'd want to say that's a pretty big variability. And if mm -hmm. you look at the hemoglobin mass, it's about the same. Mm -hmm. Some show no change at all. And yeah. you've got to remember that's always been a big debate and people are trying very hard to come up with the ideal altitude for the ideal length of time sort of thing. So that's mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah. So the variability thing, it's so hard to change performance. And the variability thing is a major problem. And I've already made it very clear that changing hemoglobin mass more than 3 or 4%, okay, is going to be beneficial to oxygen delivery, maximum oxygen, and to performance. No, no, no doubt about that. But you've got to get to that level. You've got to be able to do that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I'd say, that they still don't have a handle on variability. And I guess I might add, is there a way that you could uh, take advantage of a change in hemoglobin mass by phenotyping those athletes that are most likely to benefit from it? And I can't think of, of many ways to do that except a couple. If you saw, for example, an athlete that was already desaturating more than three or four, four or five percent during heavy exercise at sea level, then he shouldn't train at high altitude. His performance is going to be down and his training level is going to be so far down that he's going to suffer and he's, he's going to have a negative effect for sure. Another possibility, I guess, is to look at those factors that determine changes in hemoglobin mass upon exposure to hypoxia. And many authors have been trying to look at that. Iron levels, the starting level of hemoglobin mass, which in I mean, that's an effect of training itself, a big effect, an early effect. And mm -hmm. are those that already with a very high hemoglobin mass, is it more difficult to increase? And I think the evidence is yes, that it is. So those are a couple of things that I can think of that you would want to avoid. Yeah, I was going to say, that there's that, that's variability between athletes. But we also have the variability of will the same athlete have the same results if they do it again, right? This is an important point if you're doing multiple altitude camps throughout a year. And at this point in pro cycling, it seems that these camps are so accessible and ingrained into teams with allocated budgets, staff, and rider buy-in that it's almost a default to send riders to altitude. I'm talking about three camps in a season outside of the main team camps, and that's potentially over nine weeks spent at altitude. Even considering the hypoxic memory theory, which suggests that important parameters of endurance like red blood cell count are maximized by a constant topping up rather than irregular exposure, similar to what three or four consistent rides a week are better for you than just one long ride, you still never know what the outcome of the training might be. And there are some studies that demonstrate okay. this. So there have been a couple of really nice studies. I can think of one by Robertson a few years back. And we quote that in, in that debate. 
in which they wanted to look at the reproducibility of this. So they did the live high, train low over several weeks, and they did the sea level performance testing in the hemoglobin mass. Then the athletes took off a substantial period of time, and then they repeated it. And I think that it was, a, it was an only an N of eight athletes, but they were highly trained, and it was really a well-designed study. And what they saw was that they had a variable response again, as, you're, as you see, not quite as variable as, the, as those studies from the 90s that I just talked about. But they saw that with the first level of training, hemoglobin mass went up about 3 4%, and performance improved about the same amount. I don't know. I think it was a time trial type thing. And so a good performance test. Then they took the time off. Then they repeated that. And what they saw then was that the hemoglobin mass went up again. But the performance didn't. So there's a dissociation between hemoglobin mass, okay, changes, and performance. Now, why is that? Let's ask, rather than just dust it off as a, some variable response, and the N wasn't big up. And there's lots of evidence in the literature to show that, this dissociation. Why should that be? If we know for sure that doping works, and the response is not variable, by the way, to doping, it works in a healthy mm -hmm. athlete at sea level. Okay. Why do you get this? Why didn't doping work in that case? I guess is another way of saying it. Well, in this case, the way the doping was initiated was through hypoxia. Well, what might be different about hypoxia? Even a mile level, two to 2,500 meters altitude, a so-called mile level that they're sleeping in, might that have had some deleterious effect that would oppose the doping effect? Can you follow me okay? And I, I don't know what that would be. Is it some of the maladaptive factors that we've talked about? Um, I don't know, but... There is this association that has, must be acknowledged. Well, yeah, I think if you have that one kind of key link in your performance, potentially that is, you know, if this is a kind of a, a linear thing, oxygen delivery. And if your weak link is that oxygen delivery point and increasing hemoglobin mass is going to kind of decrease that choke point, then, yeah, then I would imagine all else in that that change is equal, then I would see under the doping conditions, yes, you would see this improvement. And that's why I think it's so predictable. But I think with the case with the hypoxia, there's the potential that when you put the athlete in the real world at altitude, and then you start, there's, you know, the sleep is affected, their training is affected. And so if the training and the sleep is affected, then, well, let's just for, say, for example, maybe something peripherally now is yep. maladapted to the point where you've decreased or lost that thing's ability to perform, right? It's kind of like, I'm trying to think of an example with a car. It's like if you, um, maybe you put in a better carburetor on the car and in the course of putting that new carburetor on the car, you put a big ding in the exhaust manifold and there was no way to really put that new carburetor on the car without dinging the, the exhaust manifold. Well, now you have a confounding the factor of like now the exhaust manifold and the exhaust is hampered. Something to think about and why, yeah, it's nice to see physiological improvements from things, but 
really the gold standard here is the testing protocol and seeing a performance test. And I will grant some wiggle room on on intervention studies with these testing protocols because yeah, maybe you do a 40k time trial. Or sorry, let's let's reduce a little bit. Let's say you do a, a 20k time trial and you don't see a result. Well, endurance athletes are going to do much, something much longer. So maybe maybe you can make the argument that well, the test we would have seen significant results in the test if it would have been a two or four hour test or something like that would have been a little bit more relevant to see elite athlete performance. But in that case, the individual who's promoting the hypoxic training is still making the claim and they still need to come up with their evidence to support why we should do it as opposed to just poking holes in what's, what's uh, out there. But I think to get back to your point, I think, yeah, I think as soon as you put this person at altitude with this kind of maybe myopic, I don't know, like uh, goal of just increasing the uh, hematocrit or the or hemoglobin mass, you run into this thing of what other things in the chain here are you damaging? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that's a heck of an analogy for the, the carburetor. I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that. What <laughs> might explain this, this discrepancy between doping not working when, when you achieve it through hypoxia. Is there something that happened during that eight or 10 hours of that night before exposure and hypoxia? Maybe. I wish the people that are investigating this would look at it. For example, we know that if you're exposed, even for a night in hypoxia, there are after effects that carry over. The level of mm -hmm. sympathetic nerve activity, which is a vision, will carry over. The level of hyperventilation will carry over. The deprivation of slow wave sleep will carry over to an effect the next day. I wonder if any of them have an effect. Let's start looking at some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. If there's the yeah. outside chance at that low level of altitude that one of these athletes is periodically breathing during sleep, which is an extremely common feature of people living at high altitude above 2,500 meters, okay? Very common feature. Let's look at it. All you have to do is put an oximeter on their finger and look at it. All you have to do is examine the blood pressure in the morning following this carefully, not just crappy measurements, but carefully. I would like to see this looked at. And of course, then there's always the placebo effect, which is going to be highly variable mm -hmm. among people. Last time I looked, there were two studies of maybe 100 plus studies done in epoxy training. Two included a placebo. Placebo works, yep. guys. Placebo yep. on athletes has an effect. Yep. So all of those things can, can, one, lead to variability, and second, can go against the predictable doping effect. All of those factors. And that's, that's with live high, train low. I understood there's still all kinds of people that do the live high, train high. Right? That's mm -hmm. what Chris Gore yeah. used to tell me. Maybe that's... It's changed more recently. And there the, the trade-off is how much you lower your training intensity at high altitude versus your gain in hemoglobin mass, right? Plus the effect yeah. of actually staying longer in hypoxia, which is going to have a bigger chance of a carryover of negative effect at sea level of the factors we just talked about. I guess that's, those are some of the things I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I just had a I just had a point about what you were saying there. Along with that placebo effect, there's data that's come out, and I've, I think I've seen it presented, where 
the supposed benefits of hypoxia are most seen like right when you come out of hypoxia and then this kind of downstream effect of like a few days later, like 10 days later or something like that. And that was interesting to me too. And, you know, if you're a physiologist and you look at it and you're like, oh, okay, well, there's a physiological reason for this. But I don't know if it was you or somebody else pointed out that, well, if you come out of hypoxia and you don't account for the placebo effect, then that's when you're going to get the benefit. And then after you go out and you do your intervals really hard because you think you have a benefit and you've increased your training stress potentially, guess when you're going to see the benefit of that increased training stress from the placebo effect? Well, probably 10 days down the road. So it's again, kind of, well, is, is the benefit really because of the hypoxia or is it because of the placebo effect or is it because of the, you know, the person was at altitude and just got to train more. And so there's a lot of things that aren't really accounted for really well in a lot of these studies is what you're saying. It sounds like. Well, I don't think I suggested those details of how the placebo effect might work. Um, those that's all conjecture, but the fact that placebos Mm -hmm. work is not conjecture. They do, mm-hmm. and they'll have a variable effect, just like the other things we're talking about, high variability. And as far as like the 10 days later thing, I didn't know about that. But remember, this red cell mass doesn't stay up forever. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. and Lundby yep. studies with very careful measurements of hemoglobin mass show how long it takes in the onset of it. And we're talking mm-hmm. like 10 days for everybody mm-hmm. to show an effect in his group. You can look it up mm-hmm. because that's the guideline you should use, how how long you have to be in that environment. And if you're just doing it every night rather than continuously, you've got to try and take that into account rather than surmise that you're going to get a bump in hemoglobin mm-hmm. mass. You will not. You must know that. And yep. that's got to be yep. one of the big reasons for the variability yep. Yep. for sure. And then in the off transient, it's about mm-hmm. another week and a half for that to, to come down. You better perform in that window sort of thing. But let me say something else about that, about that, that, and what I'm trying to do, I, it would be great if athletes stop doping. It's dangerous. This is dangerous, immoral (laughs) and dangerous. And if, if hypoxic training is one of the ways around this, it's illegally great. But let, let's try and find out more about it rather than surmise. Like, uh, that's how ridiculous mm-hmm. it's gotten to the point. There are teams, and many of them from Australia, that come to Boulder, Colorado every fall. Uh, they're uh, Australian rules football teams, professionals, uh, I think some soccer teams as well. And they come there, they've been doing it for years now. That costs millions and millions of dollars. And so, I was giving a talk mm-hmm. in Melbourne a few years back, and, and uh, there were a couple of coaches in the audience, and I was trying to make this point between adaptation and maladaptation because it was a physiology talk. And this guy just stood up. He said, nope, mm-hmm. no way, Mike. It works for us. We, I said, oh, okay, tell me about it. How, how do you go about it? So here's what they do. They go to, to Boulder, which is not a, a very high altitude. It's around... It's above Denver, another 1,000 feet, so maybe 2,500 meters, I'm kind of guessing, but somewhere in there. And they go for a month, and they came home 
This was Australian rules team. They came home just before Christmas. Okay. So the guy's describing it to me. And I said, oh, just before Christmas you come home. And what has happened to hemoglobin? Oh, he said, we don't measure hemoglobin. <laughs> but he, okay, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Performance is what you're really interested in. I said, and then what? He said, and then we perform much better in the season. I said, when did the season start? He said, mid-February. I didn't bother even continuing the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is, another, this is a funny anecdote. That same trip to Melbourne, I gave a public talk, and it was on hypoxia. And again, mainly the physiology, but at the end of it, I talked about hypoxic training and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I had a, there was a press conference the next day, and there was all these journalists, and uh, over the corners, this guy, real long hair, all ripped, just as fit-looking as could be, muscular-wise. And he didn't say a word. <laughs> no, I have no idea who it was. He was a triathlete, it turns out. He said, and he just sat there the whole time. And uh, I was talking about <laughs> all the detail physiology. And at the end, he kind of raised his hand and said to me, he said, Professor, he said, I can see, and I I don't doubt all these things you're talking about, about the validation hypoxia, he said, but where can I get me one of those tents? <laughs> he, yeah. he said, I already know this is kicking the hell out of me. I already know that, the way he trains, okay? Uh, but if I can get an edge, where can I yeah. get me one of those tents? I just laughed and said, beautiful. Yeah. I think it, it really was a, a yeah. footnote that people want this. So let's let's see if a way... Rather than just accept it, let's see if the way we can improve it, we can phenotype it, a way to reduce this variability, to be sure that there are not, and I'm not suggesting that this is to um, make them unhealthy by any means, not suggesting that at all, but just be aware that hypoxia has a maladaptive side and do some simple tests to see if there's any carryover of it. That's my point. But back on the practical side of it, the variability is for real. The dissociation between the hemoglobin mass and yep. performance, those examples are for real. The variability in, in short terms of hypoxia in their ability to increase hemoglobin mass, that's for real. So you can't ignore those things. This is not a slam dunk. You can't put your athlete in a hypoxic environment and expect magic. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, one thing I will speak on, I've actually got two points here. One thing I'll say is there's a little bit of a paradox going on here because in order to be an athlete, especially an endurance athlete, that is going to perform at the highest level, you have to be gifted and talented and all that kind of stuff, but you have to have a massive amount of grit and tolerance for pain and discomfort and all that kind of stuff. And within that environment, I've made this point within the blood lactate testing episodes we did around whether or not we should blood lactate test endurance athletes. And one of the things I said that might be attractive about it is that it's painful to do. And, and pain and discomfort is associated with gains within the endurance sports. It's not totally untrue, but you should definitely decide and be skeptical and care and be concerned about where you are experiencing this pain and how you experience it. I mean, you can get hit by a bus and that can be really painful, but it's not going to improve yeah. your performance at all. And so part of the reason I look at this and I'm like, compare like heat acclimation and hypoxia to each other. And 
heat acclimation is, you know, uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff, but it's a lot easier. I mean, one of the things I was going to point out here too, is that if you do 30 minutes in the sauna and you do that, like every day, you're going to see benefits within the heat. Your performance in the heat will improve. No doubt. But with hypoxia, one of the things that's I think is really important to point out within that is that you're looking for a resorpotent, and that is really far downstream. Like you need to be consistently in hypoxia, and the thing that will affect your erythropotent downstream is the absence of hypoxia. So if you're doing the live high, train low thing, whenever you're outside of altitude, it's not like heat training where like you can take a break from it. Like if you take a break from the altitude, it just becomes longer before the erythropotent comes in. And that's what you're looking for, right? Like that's one thing to kind of point out and one of the hampers this is that there's just a massive amount of time in uh, hypoxia. Yeah. One thing I would touch on there, Jason, off what you said is, yeah, obviously pain is one word for it, but I just think of altitude as another kind of stress that you're implementing. So we have all these different stresses that we can add in Mm -hmm. as coaches if you're looking at your athlete they can only handle so much stress and obviously if you're going to be adding in stress you want to know that that's going to be useful and create useful adaptations towards performance never thought of that that's a a very good point Mm -hmm. so training stress is one of them and we know that training stress is predominantly useful as long as it's the dose is right uh that's one thing we've we've definitely got and then there's other stresses like life stresses, which are always bad. Like you're never getting someone in a relationship stress with like that's having a fight with their partner or that's just lost their job and that's that's never going to be beneficial. So now it's a matter of finding out those other stresses that we can add in that are going to be in between those and what, how far in between those they are. So another thing is like strength training is obviously going to be a stress. And as endurance athletes, we're determining then when to add in strength training so that is this going to be a more beneficial stress than simply training on its own. So I think of altitude along a similar line to that. You're adding in stress to the system. You can only handle so much stress. So is the altitude going to be better than simply training more and having more training stress? Uh, Because there's obviously a limit to that as well. Is it something that you combine with other stresses such as strength training, such as heat training, within the same period or within uh, periods subsequent to each other. Uh, And then it's just a matter of managing that stress and working out what's useful and what isn't. So I think it's important to remember that all of these stresses aren't always beneficial. Obviously, we would hope that the amount of people using this, that it's not like a relationship stress or a life stress or a financial stress where it's only deleterious. But yeah, it's important to realize that there's going to be that cost-benefit analysis that you have to do on adding any stress oh, to the that's system. That's fascinating. I never thought of it in that way. I just I wonder if in one detailed example of that might be in sleep. An athlete really needs really sound sleep and slow-wave yeah. sleep and REM yeah. sleep. And we know that even mild hypoxia interrupts that. And so it, yes. that would be another phenotype, I would think, I hadn't thought of before you just went through the, this idea of multiple stresses, that if a person is really, that athlete is really having trouble sleeping in that tent, whether it's the tent or whether it's the hypoxia itself or both, then I'd rethink it because that's yes. a stress you don't need. That's, uh, that's very interesting, Cyrus. Yep. 
Yeah, and obviously that's that's an important part of it because the the better your recovery is, the more stress you can add to the system. Mm-hmm. So it's important with altitude that obviously, yeah, that's a stress that's directly hampering your recovery. So that's going to basically take away from other stresses that you can add in. And that's a matter of weighing up whether that decreased recovery is still going to be offset by the gains that you would get from mm-hmm. doing the altitude training or exposure. Getting back to this fitness, uh, you were talking with the yep. additive stress, Sarah Cyrus. I know there was some research that came out of Australia. That was written by Erin McCleave and Erin Coots. And she was looking at combined heat and hypoxia training. And without having the papers in front of me, I struggle to have the exact results. But I think when they put the training with the heat, with the altitude, it was a no-go. It was not, I, I don't want, I, I can't say for sure there was a decrease in performance, but there wasn't an improvement. That study titled Concurrent Heat and Intermittent Hypoxic Training, No Additional Performance Benefit Over Temperate Training, published in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, the three main interventions for the 29 well-trained male cyclists included three weeks of moderate to high-intensity interval training, This is four times 60 minutes a week in one of three conditions. The first one is heat alone. The second one is heat plus hypoxia. And the third one is a temperate environment. And the results, they concluded that three weeks of interval training in heat, concurrent heat and hypoxia and temperate environments improve 20 kilometer time trial performance to the same extent. Despite indications of physiological adaptations, the addition of independent heat or concurrent heat and hypoxia provided no greater performance benefits in a temperate environment than temperate training alone. Now, this is all about stress. And the point being is like, we're trying to add in all of this extra stress on top of an athlete. One of the things that I noted when I was doing heat training on myself and the piloting is that when I got to the end of the week, I felt like I'd just done three interval sessions back to back to back just because I had included heat into my training. And my thought was like, well, if I wanted to feel this fatigued and this crappy on this day, I could have just done three interval sessions in a row and I might've got a better benefit than if I would have put in the heat stress. So even though fatigue is hard to measure, but even though like say theoretically, I would, could have been in the same fatigued state, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of mention that because there is some research out there that, you know, well, it's like if hypoxia is good and heat's good and training's good, what happens if we put them all together? Like it was good that they tested it. But, you know, if that's your thinking, it gets back to this whole conversation here is maybe we should just increase the training load. I'll also add a little more on stress and this idea that stress is stress after all. A very recent paper tested the hypothesis that that heat acclimation training would detrimentally affect sleep variables and alter incidental physical activity compared to a thermoneutral training control condition, resulting in five consecutive days of heat training negatively affecting some objective measures of sleep quality and incidental physical activity in recreational trained athletes. The overall objective then is to focus training on stress that matters, using things that work, like training load. 
I'd like to make it clear here that Jerome isn't against athletes using anything that... A legal benefit to an athlete? Go for it. But go in with your eyes open. Coaches too. Come on, let's take a good look at this. It's more about making sure that you're monitoring the athlete to make sure that you're not wasting effort, time and money. How do we do that? Jerome already mentioned phenotyping athletes that are most likely to benefit from altitude training, and this is to make sure that their performance isn't going to be down and their training level isn't going to be so far down that they're going to suffer and they're going to have a negative effect. So it really comes down to knowing the athlete and monitoring the right things. Yeah, and I think it's better now where the sport is at that there's more investment in sports science. The the top teams are all hiring multiple sports scientists. We can get now oximeters and phenomenometers so that people can be measuring that oxygen saturation we can do regular blood tests so that people can see their hemoglobin mass and check their iron levels and this kind of stuff throughout altitude training and um, really actually monitor what's going on rather than just having it being a complete guessing game obviously for at an amateur level there's a lot more guessing going on because there's simply not the resources available to do all of that kind of stuff but um yeah, I think at the top level, we're seeing more and more of that closer monitoring around those key altitude yeah, training try, blocks. Try adding some simple stuff like measuring some simple blood pressure measurements over time the next morning after that sleeping in the tent. Check on their sleep. I'm not saying measuring the electroencephalogram all night long. Nobody's going to do that. But there are detailed questionnaires on sleep quality. Check a guy out. See how he's doing. If there are problems with that, get them out of that hypoxy tent. And athletes are really good at monitoring their sleep now as well. Like we, we haven't touched yeah. on wearables too much on the podcast, but there is more and more wearables now that athletes can do that. So Right, those indirect measures. Sure, sure. No, but that's that's a start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's in the front of athletes' mind now yeah. to focus on that recovery. Sure. So it is quite easy for them to check how they're going yep. when they're at, yep. good in idea. that high-altitude environment. And if they... If they're desaturators at or near sea level, do not train at in a hypoxic environment. You are really asking for it. You'll be one of those half the group that's negative for sure because your training intensity will just go to blazes. Okay, sorry to repeat myself now. And for fear of this podcast just repeating all the other information on altitude training, let's get to the point. And the point of all of this is not to stop people doing altitude training. It's for coaches and athletes to stop and think before acting. And also, if things don't add up, not being afraid to skip the altitude training altogether. One of the other things that's kind of come out as I was looked into this deeper from the proponents of it is that the protocols and how they suggest this, it seems to be very, very finicky. And... I don't want to say it's almost like reading tea leaves at this point, but if if your protocol is so finicky that you have to do everything precisely exact, what is the real world application then? What are the chances that the people in the real world are interpreting everything right and, and applying everything correctly? To add to this, I want to play a question and answer from an altitude training conference in 2013. The person answering the question is Professor Chris Gore the head of physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport from 2005 to 2017. 
So he's been around altitude training since the 90s. So, sorry, I've got the microphone up here. So the critical question to me seems that it's performance that's the ultimate marker of whether this works or not. And if it takes greater than 10 hours a day at extreme expense to try and get a 1% increment in performance, my question is, would that resource be better spent on other methods of performance enhancement? I mean, nations put a lot of onus on their Olympic and world championship performances and spend ridiculous amounts of money uh, chasing those medals. Um, uh, well, reflecting back to Olaf Schumacher's comment, I think many, many athletes do use altitude, looking for those last fractions of a percent um, you know, I've felt as a scientist since working with Charlie Walsh right back in, you know, in the early days that I've been trying to measure all the empirical stuff, the anecdotal stuff, and I've really scratched the surface to, to try and actually come up with an answer of does it, does it work, that I can put my hand on my heart as a scientist and prove beyond all doubt. In other words, when a scientist that spent a lifetime looking at this can't admit that it works and that it lacks reproducibility, it's because without the empirical evidence on an individual level, you would be hard-pressed to create a protocol for yourself. But let's take a moment to talk about altitude training and cycling culture. More specifically, how they might be untangled. And our thoughts around this have more to do with anecdotes than data. We have seen anecdotes of negative responders. So Matthew Vanderpoel who performed super well at the Giro this year. There's a four-week break, I think, this year between the Giro and the Tour de France, and he went and did an altitude training camp after the Giro. He openly said in the media he thought he'd recovered well after the Giro, and then uh, after his altitude training camp, showed up to the Tour de France and was in really bad form. Like, bad form for him means he's still getting in breakaways and off the front, but he... He was nowhere near the Matthew Vanderpoel we've seen. And he attributed that to the altitude camp that he did and thinks that it just tipped him over the edge and he came in a little bit overdone. Yeah, he just wasn't at his best. I think more people took notice of Matthew Vanderpoel's comments to the media after his disappointing Tour de France than will listen to this podcast. And for his exact words, he said, quote, I think that something went wrong with the altitude training camp after the Giro and before the Tour. I didn't feel like I came out of the Giro completely empty. On the contrary, maybe my body was still recovering and it didn't recover enough at altitude. I'm not 100% sure, but I have the feeling that it was something to do with that. To give this some more context, I went on Strava to find the details about the timing of this camp. And Vanderpool finished the Giro on May 29, 2022. The following week, he did a total of 97 kilometers on the 3rd and 4th of June. And after a couple of days with some riding in the mountains, so a few climbs higher than 1,500 meters, but not sleeping at altitude, on June 11, he slept at altitude for the first time. And this is 13 days after the end of the Giro. And he finished the camp on June 21, which is 11 days total at altitude. Then 10 days after coming down on July 1, he started the Tour de France. So we have heard stories of that, but then we've heard stories from him prior to that of using altitude successfully. And it's hard to know whether when he was using altitude successfully, he would have been better off being at sea level because 
n equals one, we couldn't do a, a really good crossover study there to to look at that. So there is anecdotes from within the peloton. There are some riders that will not um, use altitude training if they aren't proponents of it, but the vast majority are using it still. No. Um, and I don't know of any teams or team staff that would recommend against it. I know I've worked with athletes I'm coaching or even myself, I've had recommendations always to be careful around using it, which is good that sports scientists and coaches aren't just saying, yeah, go ahead. If you can fit it in, do it. Uh, it's more so, okay, what's your reasoning for this? Be careful if it's close to a race. Um, yeah, try and check these things. So I think it is less just blind faith now and there's a, a lot more education around it. But I don't know if there'll be a point anytime soon where, as Jason said, we'll be actively stopping riders. I've heard using. that the Norwegian sport uh, government people have either thought of or have banned it for their government-sponsored athletes, endurance athletes, especially cross-country skiers. So um, They've banned hypoxic training. That's what I've heard. Wow. I'm jumping in here because it's fascinating. I've long known that Norwegian athletes are banned from using simulated hypoxic training. And this stemmed from a paper published by Baker and Hopkins in 1998 that stated that hypoxia training offered athletes an unfair technical edge and was harmful if not planned and managed by an expert. It has been banned since 2003, noting it wasn't made illegal. However, athletes have to travel to a natural altitude for training. Many Norwegian athletes train in the Sierra Nevada, but recently the ban was overturned by the Sports Council and since October 2021, it is now possible to use simulated hypoxic training in Norway. Getting back to this culture thing, I think maybe we have enough science for questioning around hypoxic training right now in the literature for someone that's very kind of science-minded to maybe be questioning it. But I think around the, the, the psychological research about beliefs and convincing people of things, I want to say, don't quote me on this, that if someone came to an emotional conclusion, in order to change their mind, you need an emotional argument the opposite way. Yep. So if to speak to your, your anecdote there, Cyrus, if we have more anecdotes that are coming out from people like Vanderpoel or like, I went to altitude and I came out and I performed like crap. If that starts to become a, a norm or communicated more through uh, elite cycling and with general cyclists and amateur cyclists, it could come to the point where it changes the culture. Yep. Maybe that maybe it just takes more anecdotes as opposed to like the scientists saying, hey, maybe we should question this. It's a sad world we live in. That that's the end. That's a hell of a conclusion, <laughs> isn't it? Let's depend yeah. on anecdotes rather than doing good studies. Yeah, that's the species we are. You know, what what what, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, it's a sad reality, but I think yeah, there's there's an element of truth to that. Yeah. Last question: How do you think your thoughts and thinking on hypoxic training has evolved? Well, I think um, I think knowing people like Karsten Lundby and his student uh, Christoph Sieberman, we have interacted so extensively on this and I've kind of helped advise them on a number of their studies. I've learned a lot from them. And I, I think, I was thinking 
kind of about the negative side of it before I met them. But I think they've really solidified for me to, that uh, the importance of designing these studies properly. Let's see, in listening to people like Cyrus, uh, you know, who trains in these environments and uses hypoxic training, um, I think that makes me see uh, another little positive side of it. I think Gregoire Millet, who debated against us, that guy knows hypoxia. I just was reading, in fact, I just corresponded with him earlier this week um, on uh, one of his papers. Very, very insightful. I think he's, he's, he's biased a little way, but all of us have a little bit of bias. So I think I've learned from all those people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's, that's a wrap. Altitude training is a contentious issue. But after this discussion with Jerome, I have a better understanding of the matter and I'm convinced that having dialogues like this improves both the coach and the athlete's performance as well as the coaching and scientific capacities of sports scientists. Getting the science correct is more important than discouraging individuals from performing altitude training and it's just simply meant to make coaches and athletes pause and reflect. Professor Jerome Dempsey is an internationally recognized expert in the field of respiratory physiology, and I trust you were able to gain an appreciation for his wealth of knowledge just by listening in. Meanwhile, we are relieved that he's so eager to teach us all he can about this topic. We have another episode with Jerome on respiratory physiology. Don't know what that is? It might just be the one thing you aren't optimizing for your performance. And like always, if you got something from this episode, consider becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club because there's a members-only feed that has full interviews and bonus episodes, and you are helping us all continue our mission to deliver the best cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater community for a better sport. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Don't forget, Jason, Cyrus, and I offer coaching and consulting services for cyclists and teams. Links to our websites can be found in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening.